Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Welcome to episode 479, John Harrison, The Search of the Longitude Problem. And this is uh, our last part, part eight, of our eight-part uh, episode of uh, John Longitude Harrison. So, hoping that the involvement of the king may cause some change of heart in the commissioners, Harrison approached the Board of Longitude on May 28, 1772, citing H5's good behavior and asking for the remaining 10,000 pounds. It was a vain hope at all. The board replied that only an official trial would suffice and that no regard would be hewn to the result of any trial of them in any other way. Probably at the suggestion of the king himself, Harrison now formally approached the prime minister, Lord North, with the full story. This appeal had the interesting effect of causing the Speaker of the House of Commons to instruct the Board of Longitude to reassess the case in William Harrison's presence, witnessed by two MPs who were Harrison supporters. At this meeting, the commissioners posed a number of specific formal questions to William, who somewhat curiously gave only abrupt answers, most in the negative, though. So when finally asked why he refused now to submit just one timekeeper for a trial, he replied for the following reasons, loss of time, expense, attending it, uncertainty of reward afterwards, and I think I can employ my time better elsewhere. The board minutes continue. He then withdrew. What with that, all contact between the board and Harrison's ended at that time. Harrison's petition to Parliament required further redrafting before it could be guaranteed a successful result. Finally, the recommendations of a specially appointed Parliamentary Finance Committee were accepted by the House on June 21, 1773. This, an Act of Parliament entitled King George III, Chapter 77, duly received royal assent and Harrison was awarded £8,750. This was not the £10,000 for which Harrison was hoping, but if one adds it all up, the sums that he had from the board before, including expenses. The final sum totals well over £23,000. Harrison had, at last, received the great longitude prize money. The interesting question remains as to whether Harrison had actually won the full longitude prize. The members of the board of longitude were opposed to the final payment, and it could be argued that without their approval that one cannot say the full prize had been won. It might also be argued that, as no doubt Harrison did, that all of the sums excepting the first ten thousand dollar or ten thousand pounds, pardon me, and Parliament's eight thousand seven hundred and fifty pounds were not reward but were covering his cost. But it is clear from the board's deliberations what what was next and what was not. 
consider them as expenses. However, it was agreed by Act of Parliament that Harrison should receive the money that he did. And whether they liked it or not, that money was all paid to him through the Board of Longitude, through them, throughout, and coming out of their own accounts. So it can also be argued that the prize was effectively won. Perhaps more important to John was that the reward been seen to be all his. It still wrangled with him that the members of the board had not approved the granting of the money. But there was some recognition that John Harrison has solved the Longitude problem. Less than three years later, on March 24th, 1776, March 24th, 1776, John Harrison died in his studio, in his house, at Red Lion Square. It was on his 83rd birthday. So in conclusion, in 1772, Larkham Kendall's copy of H4, which was K1, was given the most exacting trial imaginable when it was issued to Captain John Cook on his second voyage of discovery to the South Seas. It performed magnificently. From his own log of the voyage, we can read of Cook's steady conversion toward belief in this new timekeeper from being a traditionalist and one who learned to trust the lunar distance method of his first voyage. The second voyage saw Cook gradually won over by using an instrument he had faith in. References such as our trusting friends, the watch, and our never-failing guide speak volumes from a man of Cook's abilities and experience. K-1 was used by Cook on both his second and third voyages to chart most of the Pacific Islands and northeastern Pacific coastlines, amply demonstrating the reliability of both concept and the hardware. It is not known whether Harrison heard of K-1 success after James Cook's second voyage of discovery, but it is highly likely he would. As an old man had been informed soon after Cook returned in July of 1775, one certainly hopes that he would have been. The story of the marine chronometer, as such instruments became known, does not end here. Following Harrison's proof of such a timekeeper was possible, and with some of his H4's essential design features published and available to watchmakers, a number of London makers found ways to simplify Harrison's designs, while preserving the fundamentals that ensured its good performance. It was not in, entirely in London that these design simpli simplifications took place. The evidence suggests that one important concept, the free or detached escapement, central to modern chronometer design, was first thought out by the celebrated French horologist Pierre Leroy. Head and shoulders above the rest, among his next generation of makers, was John Arnold, encouraged by Neville Masculine, who presented him with a copy of Harrison's Principles immediately after publication. Arnold was responsible for the majority of design improvements in today's modern marine chronometers. It then only remained for watchmaker Thomas Earnshaw to standardize the form, which enabled the concept 
to have been made quickly and on a practical basis, which meant cheaply and in large numbers. Thus, England remained at the forefront of chronometer and precision watch production up to the end of the 19th century. It is not an exaggeration to say that without Harrison's pioneering work, Britain's foreign trade would not ever have developed so immensely and its empire could not have expanded as rapidly as it did. For nearly two centuries, Britannia had indeed ruled the waves and Harrison in no small measure made this enabling entirely possible. Harrison's Legacy Ever since Harrison's disastrous trial under Masculine at sea, the timekeepers remained at Greenwich. They sat virtually untouched until the 1920s. They lay in store, dirty, dismantled, and decaying. It was only when a lieutenant commander, Rupert T. Gould, a polymath, and a keen amateur horologist expressed an interest in them and they, that they would run once, once more and see the light of day. And he did this on his own dime. He did this as a volunteer. Gould described their condition. All were dirty, defective, and corroded. He went on to say that they were the most accurate timekeepers ever made. The life work of an original genius who was also an Englishman. And here they were, discarded, forgotten, buried. Surely they deserve a much better fate. Gould wrote the definitive book on marine chronometers. Eventually, Gould was allowed to restore all the timekeepers except for H5. A brilliant and remarkable polymath, Gould was fanatical in his interest in Harrison as was one of the 20th century's finest antiquarian horologists. So determined was he to see Harrison's legacy restored to its formal glory. It not only took the rest of his life, like Harrison, but also caused him to lose nearly everything he held dear. The magnificent obsession of his ultimately contributed to the breakdown of his marriage and the loss of his home and the custody of his children, his closest friendship, and even his job. He lost everything in his life because he was dedicated to a good cause, a cause of historic materialism antiquarian materialism. He paid a very high price, and it should be remembered that it is largely thanks to Gould's heroic efforts that John Harrison's timekeepers were saved from neglect. We all owe him a debt that can never, ever be repaid. It must also be said that after Gould's death, the care of the timekeepers was undertaken by the chronometer section of the Minister of Defense who continued Gould's good works and improved one or two of his less elegant repairs. So well was all this work carried out over previous years that today the large timekeepers run consistently without any fear of significant deterioration and almost without breakdown. All that is required is minimal winding and conservation weekly. Hence, they are preserved for centuries to come. So in 2001, Harrison's tercentenary was saw a great recognition as a memorial in Westminster Abbey after Harrison. This finally bore fruit in 2006 with a memorial tablet inlaid in the floor of the nave of Westminster Abbey. 
Appropriately, this was right on top of the grave of his old friend, George Graham, who is buried in the same tomb as his mentor, Thomas Tompion. The tablet reads, John Longitude Harrison lies here. So Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, signing out. Thanks for listening to John Harrison searching for the quest of longitude. Thanks for listening. Pass it on.